Hello and welcome to Goblet of Wine, a Drunken Harry Potter podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Charlie, and today we're reading the final two chapters of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. So sad, but we enjoyed it so much. So grab a drink, listen along, because this one's a big one. We are back, guys. Yeah, back and ready for ready for the last two chapters. And I forgot how to stone. I made her do a shot just before this episode. Follow us on Twitter at Goblet Wine Pod to see me making Charlie do a shot. I hate shots. I made her do it. It was great. We needed. We're recording this quite early. What time is it? It's It's six. Six six o'clock in the evening. But we're batch recording because Christmas is coming up and we know that we're both going to go... So we both live in London, but we're both going to go home to our families over Christmas. So we're basically not going to see each other for three weeks. Oh my God. How How will I live without you? Oh my God. So we need to batch record. So, um... We got over that fast. So we're doing shots. Uh, <laughs> so I made her do a shot and she's still, her head's spinning from it. Uh, what are you drinking without the shot? Uh, without the shot, I am drinking some Budweiser. Oh, Why God. did you make me do a shot? I can't believe you're this stuttery after one shot. I think I'm just nervous. Uh, I'm drinking wine. So basically classic Charlie and Hannah, beer and wine. But and wine. remember, if you want to choose our alcohol yourself so to stop us drinking the classic beer and wine you can have over head over to www.patreon i forgot no, you can't speak. no i can't www.patreon.com slash goblet of wine where there is a reward tier where you can choose which alcohol you drink um this podcast sometimes gets expensive to produce, so that's why we set up a Patreon, but it's full of great rewards, including behind the scenes, bonus episodes, and choosing the alcohol we drink. So head over there and donate if you have the extra money. If you don't, that is absolutely fine. We only hate you a little bit. That's not true. But what you <laughs> can do if you have no money to spare, because we have no money to spare, we relate, is recommend us to a friend. If you have a friend who loves Harry Potter... Just be like, hey, you know, you know, you love Harry Potter. Do you want to listen to this podcast? Mm-hmm. Because you'll love it. Yeah, they probably. Will. You might hate it because We're we amazing. are fucking annoying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so today we are talking about the final two chapters of yes. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. We're so excited. Let's get into the chapters. So chapter 16, Through the Trap Door. What a great chapter title. So did you watch the show Trapdoor when you were young? What channel was that on? Because my family, we only had like channels one to five. Like my mum, we didn't want Digibox or anything like that. Yeah, so we were the same, but I'm pretty sure this was from the 80s. So not when we oh, were alive. no, I didn't watch it then. Um, But my mum is a big pop culture person she, mm. and she loved Trapdoor. And it's basically, it's this like claymation show. Um, and the concept is that like every episode by some you know disastrous happenstance the trap door gets opened and all these claymation monsters come out and join the other claymation monsters that are supposed to be there and the whole theme is like what's that under that trap door because there's something down there um so we're now gonna have to pause whilst i play hannah this if you want to youtube it yourself google like trap door kids show or something um i'm so excited right now yeah but it's great and it was basically my childhood okay um but yeah it, this chapter title basically because it's through tra- the trap door just makes me think what's that under that trap door okay great singing charlie 
So after that wild, wild tangent, let's get into the actual episode, Charlie. Have you got your notes ready? I do. So, um, this episode, a lot, no, sorry, this chapter, a lot happens. So, Charlie, I've got a lot of summary notes. As you guys know, I make the summary notes, Charlie makes the funnies. Uh, you also make funnies. If you have any points in between my summaries, just interrupt me. I'm going to preface that now. That's how conversation works. No, I know, but I have a lot of summary notes. (laughs) Okay, great. Chapter starts off, the kids are taking their end of year exams. Really useful end of year exams, such as Professor Flitwick's exam, where they have to make a pineapple tap dance across a desk. I need to do that all the time, and I really wish I had a spell for it. It's such a useful skill. Like, when I make a smoothie in the morning, sometimes I just want my pineapple to tap dance into my Mm -hmm. smoothie. I don't put pineapple in my smoothie. That would be way too extra. And also, everyone is allergic to pineapple. I That's why it this. makes your mouth go weird. Because everyone is a little bit allergic. Yeah. The exam's finish. Um, they're all hanging out in the grounds, and Harry realizes that the person that gave the dragon into Hagrid did it because they wanted to get information out of him. So they were using the dragon egg to get him drunk to get information out of him, which is actually quite a clever realization. It's quite a leap. Like I was like, oh. Alright then. Like, reading this as an adult, I was like, I don't think I'd make that leap, so... Honestly, right, I think Sherlock a lot of Holmes. this boils down to the fact that, like, Harry is such a fucking drama queen, and he just happens to be right a lot of the time. Yeah. Like, he guess is right. Apostle. Imagine if he was a normal student, he would be thinking there's so much drama where there's no drama. Like, yeah. he would be a nightmare. Harry is a messy bitch who lives for drama. He is. We've said this before. We want it on a t-shirt. If any of you make t-shirts, we will pay you to make yes. messy bitch that lives for the drama. Um, so they run over to Hagrid, and Hagrid explains that, yeah, he did tell a stranger about the dragon's head dragon's egg in the hogshead really nice early mention of yeah. the hogshead bear in mind the hogshead ends up coming back around in book seven really nice setting up from jk earlier than that no i know but i'm saying that yeah 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 we, we're really, talking like, seven books full circle, yeah. and yeah the hogshead it's just a funny way because uh so basically a lot of pubs in england are called the king's head um, so that's where this comes from. And a hog is kind of Hogwarts. I see what they're going for. Hogsmeade, Hogwarts, Hogshead. Um, but really nice that she brings that back around. So Hagrid reveals that he did tell the stranger how to get past Fluffy. And Hag- Harry realises that the stranger must have been whoever is trying to steal the Philosopher's Stone, which he believes is Snape. Mm-hmm. So he runs in to uh, the school to try to talk to Professor Dumbledore about it. Professor Dumbledore isn't there, and they run into McGonagall. Yes. Have you got a point about this? Yes, I do. So, like, Great. obviously McGonagall, she just completely brushes them off. Yeah, like, no, like, whatever, kids. Silly. It's all fine, blah, blah, blah. But then later we know that, like... No, actually, she doesn't reach out to Dumbledore, does she? Dumbledore just knows that something's wrong when he gets to the ministry. Yeah, so, but, yeah, he arrives in the ministry, and he's like, I wasn't meant to be here, back to the school. Yeah, yeah. which, yeah. Anyway, but I feel like this is... Just, like, classic, like, bad communication from adults. Like, it's just ridiculous Mm, how, rather than her being like, okay, maybe your thoughts are valid, I'll look into it. She just brushes it off completely. And it reminds me of what the new series of Unfortunate Events show. Have you watched that? Absolutely in love with it. It's so good. And it's what it does brilliantly is the demonstration of how adults, and obviously it's a really, like, extreme 
interpretation of it yeah Yeah, but also in some ways not um just how adults like refuse to communicate and look down on children and and young people everything they say yeah just patronize them and disbelieve them and i think that this is like this just part just really reminded me of a series of unfortunate events where they're like you guys you you children you couldn't possibly be right about that because i wrote down like of course mcgonnell dismissed them because they're three 11 year olds gabble gabbling on about shit that you know like we think you know the kids believe the philosopher's stone is important therefore it is imagine how important it is to the teachers mm. you know this is something that nicholas flamel who is 600 years old invented it's a really big deal for them and three kids have just run up like oh my god miss we know about the philosopher's stone we need to talk to dumbledore of course she's like go away you're yeah. wrong but also she really should have listened to them i like to believe that, you know, when Dumbledore ran back to the school, she was there because in the back of her mind, she knew that, like, oh, I think actually something might happen tonight. I'm not sure, but I'm a bit worried. That's what I assumed had happened, but now that I'm actually thinking about it, we have no textual evidence that that happened. That's what... Um, for context, I'm just swapping what around... What are you doing? Um, You're giving us the correct coasters for our houses. Yeah, so Hannah has coasters that are Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw and Slytherin. And we were both on the wrong ones, so I just swapped them around. So I have Slytherin and she has Gryffindor. Thank you. Um, I also said about that passage, how good timing is it that the hour, the hour that Harry realises that the dragon egg was a setup to find out about Fluffy is the same hour that Dumbledore is tricked into leaving. Like, the last plot event to happen mm. with the Philosopher's Stone was like two months ago. And the same hour that Harry realises is realizes is the hour door Dumbledore leaves. But, 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 here is my own but to that. So I was writing and thought of my own... Counterpoint. Counterpoint. Quirrell, although on Voldemort's side, although has Voldemort literally sticking out the back of his head, is a teacher at Hogwarts. And therefore doesn't want to steal the Philosopher's Stone until he's completed exams with all his students. And that's <laughs> why all events commence at this point. Discuss. Wow. Why else would he wait until this day? Yeah, I guess because he's the one that tricks Dumbledore into leaving. Yeah. But why didn't he do it two months before? Because plot-wise, it has to happen at the end of the school year. Exactly. But the only reason I can explain that is because Quirrell was like, well, you know, it doesn't matter about Harry and his end of year exams, but he has sets of pupils who are taking their OWLs and newts. He's got to see them through them. Ah, I I refuse to believe that he could get Voldemort on the back of his head on board with that, but maybe. Maybe. Or maybe maybe it's just bad writing. Until all the exams were done and everyone's guard was down. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. But I'm, I'm making leaps for bad writing. (laughs) <laughs> so Harry comes up with this shit plan where Hermione will like watch Snape and what Snape's doing and Harry and Ron will guard the third floor corridor. How this... are they going to fight off? How? 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 And how is Hermione going to follow Snape without Snape noticing? Uh, this shit plan falls apart within five minutes because... I was shocked. It was a shit plan in the It first... was a shit plan. Like I honestly read this as an adult just like... How did you think this was going to work, you little kids, and, and when you're kids, you do think that you know everything. No, you do. And I remember my parents saying that to me when I was a kid and thinking, fuck you, I do know everything. No. No. I knew nothing. Nah. Absolutely nothing. Still don't. So the plan doesn't work. So Harry goes on this big Voldemort rant 
which actually I realise is really insightful. So he basically says, Voldemort killed my parents. Do you not understand this is bigger than failing exams? It's bigger than being expelled. He basically says, it doesn't matter if I get expelled. Voldemort will find me anyway, and I'll be waiting when he does. But if I get a chance, I'll kill him first. And Aww, although it's you're like, like 12, how are you going to do that? Yeah, although it's like shit talking for an 11 year old, it really, for the first time, Harry in this book is very much an open character. You can put your personality onto Harry. And that was the point. You can put yourself into these books. But at this point, he's really making a stand like really making this stand, which his beliefs in this stand that I don't care if I get expelled, you know, it doesn't matter, fighting the evil for good, for, you know, my purpose is more important. That's still his motivation, six books on, you know, seven years on. So I think his character writing here is really, really nice. It's, it's really well written. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then they prepare to leave for the trap door, you know, they're all ready to leave, the common room, but Neville appears. Neville, my Neville. main boy. Let's talk about Neville. So Neville appears and tells them they can't leave. They've already lost enough points for Gryffindor and he's not going to let them go. Fucking nerd. And then Ron calls him an idiot and Neville says, don't call me an idiot. <gasps> I just love it. Um, Let's talk about Neville's character here for a bit. He's just amazing. And, like, I just love the writing style that he had this character arc in book one but then that character arc was mirrored across all seven books because he goes back to being the bumbling idiot again and again and again and again and then in book seven we arrive and Neville is the one leading yes. the battle of and that Hogwarts. You, you never see it and then it's just but oh. if you reread it you do see no, no, it. but as in you, you, you're as in purely in the seventh book, as in you don't yeah. know until they go back to Hogwarts. Yeah, and also what I realised only on this reread is that Neville fights for Hogwarts. Neville isn't fighting for his dead parents, you know. Well, maybe he is, but you know, in a lot of these moments, that is not fighting for the same motivations of, as Harry. In this moment, he confronts the trio because they're going to lose points for Gryffindor. And in the final book, he confronts the Death Eaters and Voldemort because they're attacking Hogwarts, which is his home. So Neville, unlike Harry, who fights for many different reasons, Neville is always fighting for Hogwarts. And that's carried on throughout all seven books. And it's it's just mm. lovely. Yeah, he's a fantastic character. He and he's such well a well-written character. And this is the first point in the book's where you see him not as comic relief, but as just like a really strong character. And it's true, what Dumbledore says at the end, well, what he says at the end is that it takes as much strength to stand up to your enemies as your friends. I think it takes more. Um, yeah, they changed the line in the film to, it takes more courage to stand up to your friends, which I think is right. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he is this fantastically strong character. And as I think we discussed before, you know, the reason at this point why he's not very good is because of his wand. Um, so Hermione Petrificus Totalis's Neville. So, so then they're walking to the third floor corridor and they run into Peeves. Um, and Harry impersonates the Bloody Baron to scare off Peeves, even Which though he's never heard the Bloody Baron speak. Yeah. And what I love about this is that it's kind of the only point in the books where it's like, wait, so ghosts can become completely invisible if they want. Yeah. Because 
peeves can't see it and just buys it. And it's nothing that's ever, ever, ever said again. No, but or I confirmed. believe it. Like, like it, it would make sense. Or the peeves would be like, why can't I see you? But like, it kind of is never said again. It doesn't make 100% sense if I, I'm remembering, I don't know if I'm remembering correctly or if I'm thinking about the films, but in the last film, in the last book, sorry, when Harry is chasing down the grey lady, lady, if she didn't want to be caught, she could just become invisible. Mm-hmm. So she must have wanted to be caught. Which she did. She wanted yeah. to tell her son the story. Yeah. But uh, she it just made me hard laugh that Harry like comes up with this idea to impersonate the Bloody Baron, even though it's established the Bloody Baron doesn't speak, so Harry's never heard him, so he just like puts well, on this mother, scary voice. And Which for like a 12-year-old can't be that low. And it scares Pews off, it works. So then they arrive at the third floor corridor and in comes this moment where, you know, most of the time reading the books I dismissed. But I, oh, this is one of those moments where I don't know whether to talk about it now or in book six. I'm probably going to focus on it more in book six. But Harry turns to the others and says they can go back if they want to. Mm. And, you know, Ron makes this funny comment of like, what are you talking about, idiot? And like, Hermione's like, of course we're staying. And they explain it in their own ways that they're staying. And then in book six, at the end... When Harry says he's going on the Hawkeye hunt alone. And he's like, I'll write to you. <laughs> and they reference this moment. And Hermione says, you told us once before there's time to turn back if we want to. This is the moment she's referencing. This specific yeah. moment. Um, that moment in book six, which I will go into an entire monologue about in book six. So get ready for that. But I'll bring it's, a pillow. You do. Um, it's, <laughs> it's one of my favourite quotes of all the books. And reading this moment now and the way that Ron and Hermione's characters are written in the two lines they're allowed. So let me just... Book is coming out, guys. Book's coming out. If you want to go back, I won't blame you, he said. You can take the cloak. I won't need it now. Don't be stupid, said Ron. We're coming, said Hermione. It's so simple. Like, Mm. Ron's like, don't be stupid. Like, it's very Ron. And then Hermione's just like... We're coming. Like, of course we are. It's mm. in their characters what they say. And it's also just this faith in Harry. Like, up until this moment, everything they've done has kind of been a bit of a laugh and a joke. They could have gotten tension. They could have gotten in trouble. They don't know what they're facing at this point. Yeah. They don't know whether it's injury, death, expulsion, whatever. Mm. But they believe Harry, whatever happens. They yeah. will not turn their backs on Harry, whatever happens. And honestly, right now, I'm getting a bit emotional about it because of this flashback in book six to this line. Um, the fact they don't turn back, like, bear in mind they're 12 years old. Can you imagine you age 12 and one of your friends being like, let's go on this thing which could kill us. And you going, don't be stupid, of course I'm coming with you. Yeah. And I think it's very reflective on Harry as well. I mean, partly mm. because he's such a drama queen that he's like, guys... <laughs> Goodbye. Don't and they're like, we're coming with you. Shut up, Harry. You know, the whole criticism with Dumbledore that I am on two minds on, overall I'm on Dumbledore's side, mm-hmm. but the whole criticism with him is the whole, you know, he raised Harry as a lamb for a slaughter. Lamb for slaughter, yeah. words. And yes, I think he did, and I think he did, and that it was justified. However, I don't think it was necessary. Here we have Harry in the first book already to willing to sacrifice himself not only for Ron and Hermione but for everyone else in the castle yeah Harry from entering the wizarding world for the first time with no prior knowledge and none of Dumbledore's 
prepping and priming that Dumbledore does, mm-hmm. he is already willing to sacrifice himself, which obviously he later goes on to do in the seventh book. It's part of Harry's character. Yeah, I understand why Dumbledore thinks that he needs to raise Harry as a lamb for the slaughter. And I understand why he does, but he doesn't need to. Here we have from the first book, he is willing to die yeah. for his friends. Yeah. And that's that's just... It's just horrible, but fantastic. Wow. Okay. So one of Harry's character points is that he constantly struggles to learn that he needs people. Harry is a very independent person. He's quite a selfish person and he thinks he can do everything alone. And in this book, he says to Ron Hermione, you can turn back. I don't think you're coming. And all the way up to book seven, he says, don't come with me. I'm going to do this alone. He struggles to know that he needs people. But he does need people. There's no way during this task, there's no way during any of the tasks in any of the books, there's no way during book seven that he could have done it on his own. And he struggles to realise that he does not function as a lone person. And it's not about him versus Voldemort. It's about the wizarding world Mm. versus Voldemort. And I think we really see that in this book. Like, he... Harry cannot do this alone, but he has... It's not necessarily a big-headedness thing. It's this point that he doesn't want other people to sacrifice themselves for what he believes is his Mm -hmm. destiny. But what he doesn't recognise is other people want to stop evil. Yeah. And even though they're not in the prophecy, even though it's not them against Voldemort, they are willing to die to stop the onslaught of evil. He has what Hermione puts it, a saving people thing. He does. Which is so true. And, you know, the bit in the the seventh book Mm. with the seven Harrys. Mm. And he doesn't want them to, you know, put themselves in danger for him. And they have to be like, no offence, Harry, it's not for you. Yeah, like most of them are like, if you die... Will be sad, but will carry on fighting. Yeah, because it's about the choice of the living choice that we want to make. We don't want to live under Voldemort's regime. So if you die, we'll be sad, but we'll carry on fighting without you. And that I don't think Harry realizes that until the moment when Neville steps forward in the seventh book. Yeah, I think it takes him that long. And that moment when Neville steps forward, he believes Harry's dead, but he's still. And that's why I think it it it's such a great plot point that Harry at some point witnesses people after they believe him to be dead. Yeah, 100%. I think it's, that's why it was written in. It's needed. It is needed because it's a very... It's, it's seen not as about good, It's seen as, at the beginning, a good point of his personality. He wants to save everyone, but by the end, it's a negative point of his personality. Yeah. Let's move on. We've talked about this for a while. So Harry asks them if they want to go back. They say no. Ron then says... They open the trap door, they see it so far down that they can't see the bottom, and Ron goes, do you want to go first, Hermione? Like, the classic thing of a man asking a woman if they want to go, you know, when a man opens, the classic thing is, a man opens a door for a woman and she goes through first. So Ron does this thing where, like, do you want to go first? And Hermione's like, no, I don't. And for some reason, rereading it, I found it the funniest thing, because it's a play on men asking women to go first, because it's a politeness thing, and Hermione's like, fuck no, this is the unknown. You go first. Yeah, you bitch. <laughs> you bitch. <laughs> you sort it. I'm going last. <laughs> yeah. It's it. just great. Um, yep. So Harry says he'll drop through the trapdoor first he because does. it's Harry. <laughs> then Ron goes. Then Hermione goes. So they drop through the trapdoor and land on some sort of plant-based item. That they don't question. They don't question. If just like, I landed on the plant, I'd be like, 
oh my god, the poor plant. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Is the plant okay? <laughs> and everyone is just like, oh, it's a squishy landing. Yeah. <laughs> Hermione is like, oh, it's a plant. It's devil snare. Get out. And it's such bad logic from Harry and Ron because they're like, isn't it convenient that there's such a comfortable landing um, when the entire thing is set up to try and stop us going through this? I'm really glad that they put this bouncy castle here when they're actively trying to put stop people. And it's like, use your brains. And also, like, Hermione says, like, Hermione, they're like, oh, you know, we're really glad. And Hermione's like, uh, no, and gets the fuck up. And yeah. it's like, they've been sat there getting wrapped in devil's snare. It's like, how do you just lie there? Just like, I'm completely unaware that a plant is wrapping itself around me. Yeah. Like, and do they not have feeling in their body. Harry at this point is, you know, minutes from being strangled to death from the devil's snare and he almost told Hermione to turn back. Harry, you'd be dead as shit. Yes. Like, you'd be dead. Like, That's... this is one of those points where Harry's like, I can do it alone. I'm like, no, you can't. Shut yeah. up. Exactly. Um. So then we come to one of the best sections of the book. Mixed with one of the best throwbacks in book oh, seven. Yes. And it's also one of the best portrayals of the trio working together. And of Hermione's weaknesses that are just left out of the film. So we've got so much to explore in literally three lines. So Hermione leaps up, realises it's Devil's Snare, and tells the boys, you know, you know, they're idiots. Hermione then says, it's Devil's Snare, I remember it. You have to give it warmth and sunlight to make it go away. Harry says you need to light a fire. It's not Hermione who realises mm -hmm. that, it's Harry. And Hermione says, of course I do. Yeah. But there's no words. And Ron says, in my top five lines of the entire book series, have you gone mad? Are you a witch or not? And this is where Hermione's character flaws come in. Hermione mm. is so intelligent. As a 12 year old, she's like, it's double snare, get out, it's gonna do this. But in the panic moment of, oh my God, the boys are gonna die. I need to get rid of this devil's snare. I don't know what to do. She's like, I need to find wood to light a fire. And yeah. Ron is the one who, despite the fact a devil's snare is about to wrap, in the book, it's about to wrap around his neck. He's like, dude, yeah. do you have a wand? Like fucking light a fire yeah, with your wand? It's the same when they're by fighting the troll. Ron's the one who's cool, calm and collected and manages to do magic he hasn't previously managed to do. He is so great yes. in those kind of situations. But like, I think it's understandable from Hermione's point it's of view. It's so if understandable. If you had learned that late in life that you could do magic, you would forget. But it's a point of Hermione's character flaw, which the film's just ignore and people seem to ignore Hermione is a very flawed character yep. and this is one of the moments she's so intelligent she is the only one who knows how to get the boys out of this situation but in a moment of panic where she thinks her two best friends are going to die she cannot work out the answer yep. and Ron is the one with a cool mm -hmm. enough head and practical Ron is practical Hermione is abstract intelligent Ron is down to earth and practical and gives her the practical advice to get them out of it. So my point is, in this through the trapdoor passage, what JK Rowling was trying to do is give each of them a thing to solve. So um, Ron solves the chess piece, Harry solves the keys, Hermione solves the potions, and all three of them working together, playing to their strengths, mm -hmm. solve the devil's snare. Yeah. So that's how I think she was trying to lay it out. You set your point. Okay, so yeah, I 100% agree. Okay. 
Good. The way I don't agree that Ron is the practical one. I think Harry is the practical one. Harry okay. is the one with the practical, physical, actual he's, solutions. He's the one that says, light the fire. Yeah. Ron is the one with the logic. Ugh. And Hermione is the one with the kind of like knowledge, knowledge and intelligence. So that's so there we go. Okay, that's the thing. Ron has real world knowledge. Yep. Harry has practical ability. Hermione mm-hmm. has book smarts. Yeah, that's the way I think it's laid out. Yeah. And I think like it's fantastic that it's that way. This of a puzzle and any other three characters couldn't have done what they go on no. to do or do even in these scenes. Like, and the it three is... of them are such different characters. If you had three friends that are similar characters, they would not have been able to solve this. And no. I honestly, what you can't see because it's an audio medium, not a visual, is I just slap the... My notebook against my legs. She's hurting herself like Dobby. Because the way the three characters are written, that they're so different, but work together to solve a problem is such good writing. It's it's it it is so good. And obviously it's very like thought out, which is fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, it's very clear throughout. The three of them solve something together and then each of them have a time to shine. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So the point is All three of them together work out how to escape the devil's snare. Film ruins that, and in the next episode, you'll see us doing a film review where we'll talk about this in a yeah, hell of I a mean, lot more depth. In this, in this part of the film, instead of actually making you know the logical suggestion, Ron just screams like an actual idiot. Yeah, and <gasps> there, there is a point that makes up for this, and I will go over this in our film review. Yeah, and I understand the reasons why they did it, but we're not going to go over that now. Yeah. So they escape the devil's snare and arrive in the key room. Um, all three of them get on brooms, which are different from the films. I always forget this. All three of them have to get on brooms and find a key that gets the door. Harry, because he's the youngest seeker in a century, obviously catches the key. Great. Duh. Easy peasy. Duh. It's like Harry's just ha- a job. Ha- sorry, I hiccuped there. I also <laughs> need more wine. I need more booze. Right, so after a um, worryingly long tangent where we stopped the podcast for about half an hour to talk about stuff, we're back, and I'll probably cut this out anyway. Um, So they get through the flying room, all three of them have to fly to catch the key, they catch the key, they open the door, and then they're in the chess room. Mm -hmm. And this is Ron's real time to shine, and what I realised is it's it's one of Ron's only real moments in all seven books to shine of his own accord without help from mm. anyone else. Like, it's it's really his time to take the lead. So, obviously, because of his knowledge in Wizard's Chess, which set, is set up throughout the whole book, he takes the lead and um, plays all the different parts in the game and is leading everyone. It's just a lovely scene where Ron takes charge. And at the end, he realises he has to be sacrificed in order for Harry to checkmate the king or the queen. However chess works, I don't play enough chess. Um, and I just thought Ron sacrificing himself here is a real testament to Ron's character. And I this is the bit where I texted Charlie. She didn't know what in context this was, but I texted Charlie saying this podcast should be changed to In Defense of Ron. Yes. Because Ron gets so much shit. Like, so much shit. But... Mostly because of the films. Mostly because of the films. And this moment here in the chess game where he sacrifices himself in order for Harry and Hermione to move forwards. Like, he doesn't know at this point they're going to win against Voldemort. He doesn't know that. It's just for them to move one step further. That's Ron's character. And also what I realised, and this is the first time I've ever realised this, we know as an adult 
that Ron just gets knocked out during this game. Like, mm. all that happens to him is the chest piece knocks him across the head and he gets knocked out. But what did Ron think at the time of sacrificing himself? Did he think he was going to die? Like, what Possibly. did he think? Yeah. Yeah. Like, at the moment where he said, I have to be taken, what did he think was going to happen to him? Did he think he was just going to be knocked out? Or did he think he was going to die? Yeah, it could have been anything. It could have been. Like, that's a huge sacrifice for a 12-year-old to make. Yeah. I just love Ron. Because <laughs> even Hermione asks, once Ron has been knocked about the head by the Queen, he asks, what if he's... And, you know, she's trying to say, what if he's dead? So it clearly looks like he's died. It's just such a... It's such a moment where the stakes of the book are put in real perspective. You know, up until this point, it's been like, a dragon, detention, you know, um, negative house points. And then we're suddenly like, oh my God, is Ron... Like, the Ron could die. The ginger might have died. The ginger might have died, dear God. So they leave the chess room with Ron just lying on the floor. And they walk through the next room where the troll has already been knocked out by the person that's walked through before. And they arrive in the potions room. So the potions room is a logic puzzle to get through the lineup of the potions. And when I was a kid, this is one of my vivid Harry Potter memories. And I don't know how young I was, but I was probably very young. I used to spend hours rereading the, the potion poem passage. I don't know what you'd call it. And trying to see if I could figure out the riddle by myself without Hermione's help. God, you're a nerd. I know. Did you not used to do that? I was hoping no. to be like, I used to do the same. No, I had a life. I didn't. <laughs> I mean, it's very hard to work out the puzzle without seeing the potion bottles. But I remember once I even got a piece of paper and drew out what the potion bottles would look like and worked it out myself. Oh, and I felt really God. proud of myself. Wow. Um, because the riddle, if you actually try to work it out as an adult, like if I lined up the potion bottles now and read you that riddle, I think you'd be able to solve it, but you'd find it really hard. Like it's a really hard riddle. Yeah, like reading out the thing, I was like, I'm not even going to attempt that in my head. I believe Pottermore, when they go over that section, have a picture of the potion bottles, which is great because it means you can go and try to work it out yourself. Um... The riddle's really hard, and like how with the chessboard, that's an opportunity for Ron to shine, this is an opportunity for Hermione to shine. Um, and it's an opportunity to show, it's not just that she reads books and memorises things, you know, she has, she has a lot of logic, she has that knowledge in her brain to work out these kind of puzzles. Yeah. So she solves it, and there's only enough potion for Harry to go through alone. So Harry says he'll go onwards. And Hermione rushes at Harry and hugs Harry. And Harry's like, oh, Hermione, no, and gets all outraged. And even in this serious moment, it's so 11-year-old boy. Yeah. Like, Hermione rushes at him Ew, and is cuties. like, Harry, no, you're going on your own. And Harry's like, Hermione? You slut. How dare you hug me? Oh. Are you pregnant now? It's so, oh, it made me laugh so much. So then Hermione says the line, books and cleverness. So Hermione says, you're very brave, Harry. And Harry says, me? What about you? And Hermione says, books and cleverness. There are more important things. Friendship and bravery. And here I feel that Hermione has got her own character arc in this book. 
at the beginning of the book, you know, she really cared about books and studies, and this has continued throughout all seven books, but even within, within this book she has a character arc, because the friendship element, that she, if we break down friendship and bravery, friendship comes from Ron. She's just seen Ron sacrifice himself for his friends, for his friends to go onwards. Bravery is Harry going in to face who he believes might be Voldemort in the next room. And she now believes these two factors are more important than books and cleverness. So this book really, in a short span of time and words, this book is quite short, shows this character arc of Hermione that mm. she's now realised these two factors which her two new best friends portray, these two boys that have finally accepted her, yeah. portray and they're more important than everything before that she's held important to yeah. herself. And it's also like the trio between them represent all four houses. 100%. So obviously Hermione is Ravenclaw, Ron is Hufflepuff and Harry is both Slytherin and Gryffindor. Gryffindor. Obviously they're all actually Gryffindor but they all in part, represent all of the houses. Yeah, and Hermione has elements of Slytherin and Ron has elements of Slytherin. Yeah, of course, they all have elements of everything because the entire house system is complete bullshit. <laughs> but it's Hermione recognising that there's more to life than books and, clev and cleverness and it's a real character arc for her. It's a real it beautiful moment. Because before, she's so reliant on books. Yeah, like, and throughout the books, we see her... Some of her main character flaws come from her over-reliance on books. Like, for example, yeah. moving into the next book, we'll talk about it more, her crush on Professor um, Lockhart become, comes because of her over-reliance on books and yeah. the written word. Yeah, and the first time we ever see her have a uh, distrust in books is in The Half-Blood Prince. With the handwritten notes. Yeah. Because she doesn't believe in anything that isn't the printed word. So, Which, like, just... Really shows that she never grew up with teachers telling her to not use Wikipedia as a source. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, don't use Wikipedia. It's not a first-hand source. Also, Hermione, when she hugs Harry and says, you know, you're really brave, I keep forgetting that we know what's going to happen to Harry at this point, but Hermione, as a character, may well think that Harry is going on to face his death with Voldemort. But also, for all she knows, she's going back and Ron's dead behind her. Mm. This must have been traumatising. Again, do any of them get therapy? No. No. But she's saying goodbye to Harry, thinking, oh, he's about to go die to face with Voldemort, and I'm about to go back and find out whether Ron's dead. Lovely, the only two people who have ever appreciated yeah. me apart from my parents. You better go carry my future husband's corpse out. <laughs> like... Give them, give the girl some therapy. That's fucking traumatizing. Please give them all therapy. Please give them all therapy. That's horrible. So then Harry takes the potion. He walks through the fire, and the chapter ends with it wasn't Snape. Oh, I just thought of another amazing Buffy segue. It wasn't even Voldemort. And what, what a great way to end it. What a yeah. great cliffhanger. It wasn't Snape. It wasn't even Voldemort. And you're left being like, because I first listened to this book on audiobook, I was like, who? Who is it? Yeah. Yeah. And what I also noticed about this chapter, just as a chapter in general, is I think in a previous podcast episode, I mentioned that unlike other fantasies, the book isn't a hero's journey. It's a murder mystery setup. But this chapter is a hero's journey. Yeah. You're going through the challenges. Like, this is where you're transported back to the fantasy genre of being like, oh, and here's a challenge. And here's a challenge. And here's a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but then mixed in with the murder mystery of 
Who is it? Who is it? Who done it? Who done it? Moving on. Chapter 17. The man with two faces. Dun dun dun! Dun dun dun! So the chapter starts off exactly where the last one ended. And I literally wrote dum dum dum. Oh my god! We're so in sync. With Harry realising it's Quirrell! The whole misdirection finally comes back around. It's not Snape. It's Quirrell. And I would love to remember my reaction when I first heard this bit. But unfortunately, due to the fact I was four or five, I can't remember. I would have been much older. I still do not remember. Yeah, it's sad, but I would love to acknowledge, you know, what shock factor this there's was. There's so much I have with, like, things in pop culture, yeah. pop culture where there's, like, a massive, massive plot twist that I wish I remember my original memory. I'm going to keep referencing Buffy at the minute. But there, there's a bit in Buffy when... Um, basically a sister character gets added oh, halfway through with like no explanation yeah. and I wish I remembered my reaction yeah. but I don't yeah there's so many bits of Harry Potter where I wish I remembered my original reaction yeah I just I really wish with like Harry Potter and so many other things I could completely wipe my memory and just start again yeah same but also I don't because a lot of the reason why I love Harry Potter is the context around it same same it's it's one of those complicated things yeah so Quirrell ties Harry up in ropes and Harry realises that the mirror of Erised is standing behind him. Um, Harry then tries to distract Quirrell by talking about Snape because all that Harry has, Harry can't do very good magic obviously, but Harry has told Hermione to go and fetch Dumbledore. So he is trying to create as much time as possible for Dumbledore to arrive. Mm -hmm. So Harry realises, and this is very clever of Harry, this is what I wrote down like, wow, intelligent. What he wants most in the world in this moment is to realise where the stone is. Realise where yes. the stone is hidden because if he, because then he can find it before Quirrell. So he realises if he moves himself in front of the mirror, he can find out where the stone is. Very clever of Harry. I'm not sure in a situation where I'd be faced where like, wow, I could die in this situation. I'd be like, let me move my body in front of this mirror so I could work out where the stone is. Yeah, but at the same time, like if I was Harry, I would be like, right, so I want to avoid like if I had that realization I'd want to avoid the mirror because I'd be like okay well as long as he doesn't know but there's he, no way he can get it out of me but he already knows that somebody else can't see what you're seeing in the mirror because Ron never saw Harry's parents no 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 but like he could torture him I don't I'm, think I, Harry knows that at this point well, Harry doesn't even know he, about torture he could still punch him <laughs> Punch you in the face, like, tell me, yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. But, um, no, but that's what I mean. Like, so I would not want to know for fear that I would end up giving it away. But Harry wants to know, Harry wants to find it because Harry has a saving people point. But there's like another bit, obviously, Harry's trying to like distract Quirrell slash Voldemort and like keep him, you know, off the topic, yeah, which is great. It's my favorite trope in anything where there's like a villain and the good person keeps them talking, yeah. He's like, But what about when Snape does this? And like the villain just has to have some like gloating quip and it just ends up getting them defeated that they have to make this one final pun, which would so be me if I was evil. But that's the thing about villains, everyone takes the mick out of it, like, oh, they get so distracted. The thing with villains is that if they've been a good enough 
villain, no one's realised they've done it. So, of course, when they get the opportunity to glow, yes. they fucking take it. This is, uh, this is... So That's why villains fall down into the trap. I know it's a trope of literature. I know it is. And I find it annoying myself. But I know if I was an evil person and I did something so under the radar that nobody yeah. noticed, when I finally almost got caught, I'd be like, well, I want to talk about it because... I want to prove how clever I am. Yeah, and this is one of my favourite things. So this is a, a little bit of a tangent. I'll be really quick. But the the same theatre group that did a very Potter musical did a musical about Batman. Oh. And in it they have... It's one of the superheroes. I can't remember which one it is. One of the really underrated superheroes. And he's going on around about Batman. And he's saying that Batman is so famous because his villains are so famous. And the reason his villains are so famous is because Batman is shit at his job. And he's like, the reason that I get no recognition as a superhero is because I am good at my job and stop my villains before they get That's famous. True. And it's, you know, this whole comedic point. But it's true. You know, if your villain is not famous, the superhero isn't famous. Good detectives won't become famous because they stop. Exactly. Like, so Harry is trying to, you know, make sure that Quirrell has that one last final glow. Yeah. So he says to him, he's like, oh, you know, I heard you and Snape in the forest talking. Yeah. And what I found really interesting was that Quirrell's reply, he's just like, yes. And then he goes on to find other stuff, but his main point is like, yes, like, he's not like, oh, did you? He's like, yes. yes. Almost like saying like, yes, I know, I know you, you were there. And it's like, so, did he then? Like, he must have known that he was but there. But is that because Voldemort is in the back of his head? Voldemort is a legitimate. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And it's so interesting. And especially especially because later on we find out that Snape is also an incredibly accomplished legitimate. You'll find out throughout this podcast that neither of us, is, neither of us can say the word oculumency oculumency legitimate legitimate yeah because it feels like it should be legit but it's not it's legitimate um this is gonna be a running theme people so snape is also a great mind reader so you're like (laughs) did they both know or was it just Quirrell slash Voldemort. I don't know. It's interesting. It's just it like the fact that he's like, oh yes, I I, I knew that. I knew. You were it's there. like it's not contented. And, and that's quite like satisfying because I think we ranted at the time. We were like, Harry's just like flying about the grounds. Yeah. He's flying through the fucking forest. But Quirrell knew all along. I like to think that actually, you know, it wasn't the fact that they're great, both great mind readers. It was just like Harry, just like, oh fuck, I've hit a tree. Oh fuck, just like crashing <laughs> through the forest. And Quirrell's like, uh, and I then can see just like, twat. We know that you're there. Yeah. yeah. We just hug. It's because it's from Harry's perspective, it's the classic yeah. unreliable narration. Exactly. It's like, Harry, you're just on your broom. You're about a metre above us. Yeah. You just farted. We heard you. <laughs> we know you're there. And Harry's just like, oh, I'm so sneaky. Oh, I'm so Ooh. sneaky. Oh, ho, ho. So then, in the end, Quirrell gets Harry to look in the mirror of Erised because he believes Voldemort tells him to, basically. And Harry sees himself putting the stone in his pocket and Harry out of the mirror then feels the stone appearing in his pocket. Um, This magic is never explained. It's fucking clever. Like, wow. Mm. Dumbledore is amazing at magic. The stone appears when someone that doesn't want the stone for any greater good reason, Yeah, it appears to them. Exactly, because we have the whole, you know, uh, function of the mirror of Edda Erised explain yeah. trust, but never 
how Dumbledore alters it. Yeah. It's, it's very clever. Spooky hocus pocus. But Voldemort, probably because he is a skilled legilimens, realises that Harry knows more about the stone than he's saying. So Quirrell unwraps the turban and we find out that Voldemort is in the back of Quirrell's head. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Charlie. Yeah. Do you know how you could have worked out all along that Voldemort was in the back of Quirrell's head from the beginning of the book? No. Okay. So the name Quirrell comes from a Roman god. Oh, fucking JK. Her and her naming. It's great. It's one of her best writing points. Okay. I I did know this, so I'm excited. Go on. There's a Roman god named Quirrell. Mm-hmm. Or named Quirinus. Actually, hold on. I want a fact check. Give me two minutes. Quirrell is named Quirrell, obviously. But his first name is Quirrellus. Hold on, let me check it. Quirinus. Wait, so he's Quirinus Quirrell. Quirinus Quirrell. His parents are horrible. Yes, they are. But also Quirinus relates to the name Quirrell, but also his first name is Quirinus. Quirinus, in Greek mythology, was a god with two faces. The Romans even produced coins with the god Quirinus on, showing a face facing two ways, Mm. because the god could see both into the present and the past. So a lot of people prayed to him because he could see both your past, but what would happen currently. Um, so basically, if you were all up on your Roman knowledge when you read this book, you knew that Quirrell was the evil character, which is very cringy. Yeah. And this is a or recurring... he could have just been a really bitchy teacher. He could have been, yeah. but this is a recurring theme throughout the book. If you think of Remus Lupin and yeah. many other characters whose plot name, plot is, name yeah. is explained in the name, um, but the Quirrell one is really interesting. Um, because Quirinus, Quirinus is a god in Roman mythology mm-hmm. with two faces. So if you knew that... That's really interesting. It's really interesting. Yeah. So, I really love that. I feel like at times you can't tell that we're drunk during this podcast until Hannah's like, Quirinus! Also, if you don't think we're drunk during this podcast, we have a recording of us in between two episodes dancing to a song which neither of us have watched yet. Oh no, oh god, we haven't. I'm leaving you to edit it. I'm going to send it to you. I can't do it. Can we watch it after this episode? Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, great. We're going to release it at some point when someone's like, you're not drunk, you're you're lying about... No, we are. We're waiting. We're, we're lying in wait, like, watch us dance. Yeah, watch us. Yeah. Um, so anyway. Moving Quirrell on. <laughs> takes the turban off. It's Voldemort. Voldemort knows that Harry has the stone. I believe that through Legilimens... Um, uh, knowing yeah, this and adult rereading so. the book. Voldemort, mind reading. Mind reading. Voldemort knows Harry has a stone in his pocket through legilimens. Mm-hmm. So Voldemort Is then that a says, stone in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> so Voldemort then basically says, um, he, he essentially says, Harry could join the dark side. He says, you know, you could run and I could kill you or you could join me and be powerful. Do you believe if Harry, in this moment, let's discount all books, let's cut it off here. Mm-hmm. If Harry had said, I'll give you the stone and I'll join you, would Voldemort have let him join him or would he have killed him? I think he would have killed him. 
I think that we know that his promise about bringing back his parents is an empty promise. That's just in the film. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So, discounting I'm that... I'm so unobservant. <laughs> no, but the problem with this book and film is they're so similar, they cross oh, yeah. over. It's, yeah. So, all Voldemort says here is, if you give me the stone, together we could be great. Um, you could join me and you could have power. Yeah. Do you believe Voldemort would have let him live as a powerful ally? No. Um, because or do you think that was I all think, a lie? You know, Voldemort pretty much knows the gist of the prophecy, yes. where you know Harry has the ability to defeat him, and I think that Voldemort would have seen him almost as a more formidable a- ally than as a foe. I think he would have seen him more as a threat as an ally than a foe, um, especially because of the half blood thing. I I don't believe for a second that Voldemort was being genuine. So I almost think he would have kept him alive because he believed that the prophecy almost could have been altered so that he could have kept an eye on Harry and Mm. trained him to be his own. But if he ever saw he was swaying loyalties, he would have killed him in a heartbeat. Yeah. So I'm in two minds. I kind of believe Voldemort would have killed him because Voldemort doesn't care. It doesn't matter that Harry switched sides. Mm. Also, he would have let him live. So I, I honestly don't know where I stand on that. Yeah. So, but then, anyway, Harry obviously doesn't agree with Voldemort and tries to escape yeah. with the stone. So, so Voldemort screams at Quirrell to stop him. Yeah. There's a bit before this that I find really interesting. Yeah. Because I was always, and this is, you know, from the book, and also I was under the impression, but now on my reread, I kind of disagree with my impression and what's in the text. Mm-hmm. So it is established that Quirrell is possessed by Voldemort. I wouldn't say he's possessed. No, but in the book it actually says that he was possessed. And I disagree with this, and this was until this rereading, I always agreed with it. Like, I just thought, I accepted what's in the literature. Mm -hmm. But now I'm just like, I don't think that's true, because, so there's a bit when Quirrell's talking about how he used to be, and he said that he was a stupid young wizard, full of ideas about good and evil. Mm -hmm. And that's not at all what we have going into the future about what people are possessed are like. Like we see it as a blacking out and a complete like taking over. I see that more as like, obviously he had Voldemort out of the back of his head. I don't see that as like properly possessed. I don't think he was possessed. He was still Quirrell. It wasn't that he was possessed. It was that obviously he had kind of Voldemort like half in him and that he, you know, he was calling Voldemort master and talking about how he used to be. It was more like he was like bewitched or swayed over to the dark side. I see Quirrell as a very intelligent young man, but someone who didn't have enough beliefs in their own belief system. Mm. So therefore was swayed by Voldemort's argument. In the same way that Abernathy in the new Fantastic Beast film is clearly a clever character but is swayed by Grindelwald's argument. There are always these people who are intelligent, books-wise people. Yeah. And this is the argument with Hermione that we were talking about earlier. Hermione is clever books-wise and what she learns from Ron and Harry is loyalty and friendship. But what Quirrell never learned is loyalty and friendship. He's clever books-wise, so therefore when he met Voldemort, he believed that Voldemort's way of living was the correct one. So I don't believe he's bewitched. I believe he's 
yeah. succumb to a power which she believed is more powerful than him. Yeah, because it just doesn't line up with anything we learn later on about possession. No. Like he he doesn't black out, and it's it's not that he's being fully taken over. It's that he has Voldemort kind of with him at all times, and yeah. he's his masters. Whereas whenever we hear about any other type of possession, it's like a full on takeover in the moment. Yeah. So even though it says in the text that he's possessed, given what we learn later on about possession, I don't believe that Quirrell is. I think it's something else. I don't think that he's just like a follower, obviously Voldemort's in the back of his head. I think it's some weird kind of in-between. Yeah. Voldemort screams at Quirrell to stop Harry escaping. It's important at this point, and I realise this as an adult reader, it's important to split this up. Voldemort does not yell at Quirrell at this point to kill Harry because Voldemort still wants Harry alive mm -hmm. at this moment. So Voldemort screams at Quirrell to stop him. So Quirrell grabs Harry's arm to try to stop him running away. But as Quirrell grabs Harry's arm, blisters appear on Quirrell's hands. So he's basically being burnt by touching mm -hmm. Harry's skin. So then Quirrell goes to strangle Harry um, because Harry's still trying to run away with the stone. Um, so Quirrell is trying to strangle him to death. Why at this point doesn't Quirrell just cast Avada Kedavra? Is a bit confusing to me. So yeah. Quirrell is trying to physically kill Harry. He's trying to strangle him and his hands get blistered so therefore he can't carry on. But if he's physically going through the effort of strangling Harry, why doesn't he just cast Avada Kedavra? Is it because Voldemort hasn't explicitly but, told yeah. him to kill him? I think so, because you can strangle someone without killing them. Because Voldemort hasn't said, and there is a difference between, like, choking someone out and, like, yeah. murdering them. So he's trying to basically make him pass out, so he's no longer a threat. Yeah, okay. but, like, there was a bit, a little bit before this that I absolutely love. So it's, yeah. like, Harry's thought process. So he's, like, he literally has a thought when he's thinking about whether he could escape, and he thinks... Dare he make a break for it? And then the next line is, but he'd barely walked five paces. And I'm like, who is like, I'm in this situation where I might die. I need to make a break for it. I'm going to walk away. I love, like, I really love the image of Harry just walking five paces backwards. I could maybe understand walking away if you were like tiptoeing away while they were distracted. And like, had it said Voldemort was distracted somehow, I would be like, okay. No, he, I he just, like, just, just it says nothing like that. It's just like Voldemort still gets full attention. Harry, Harry's just like, I'm just going to walk away from this situation. Yeah, like, um, I'm walk off. I fucking love that. It's just okay. like, okay, like I, I might die. I need to make a break for it. Just gonna, just gonna walk off. Just gonna walk off. So Harry realizes that Quirrell is getting blisters by touching Harry's skin. So Harry decides to give him a full body massage. Yes. No. This is a very important different dif difference from the film, which is why I'm gonna linger on it. Harry grabs Quirrell's arm to stop him touching him. Harry does not grab na, 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 Quirrell's na, na. face. Na, na. Na, na. Can't touch this. <laughs> Harry does not grab Quirrell's face. Harry, in a moment of, I have to stop this man strangling me, grabs his arm. Mm -hmm. So Quirrell is kind of stream screaming because Harry's grabbed onto his arm. Quirrell's trying to strangle him, but Voldemort screams, kill him, kill him. So Quirrell raises like a hand with a wand to try to kill Harry. Harry grabs onto his arm. Harry blacks out. End scene. Yeah. 
It's an important difference from the film, which we'll talk about in the film episode. <laughs> because in the film, Harry basically kills a dude. Yeah. Like, fully murders someone. As in this case, it's self-defense. Harry grabs his arm. That's self-defense. If you grab someone's face and burn it off, that's murder. Yeah, that's like... Yeah. yeah. That's what we all do when we're 12 year olds. Just like straight up murder by someone burning murder. their face off. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. End scene. Harry wakes up in a hospital with Professor Dumbledore standing over him. Dumbledore explains that, you know, there's loads of presents beside him from Harry's friends and admirers. And here comes the best bit of the book. Dumbledore mentions that Fred and George tried to send Harry a toilet seat. Yes. I love that. What? And a also- great... Callback! Yeah. Dear God, it's the best callback of all the fucking books. That at the beginning of the book, Fred and George said they were going to send Ginny a toilet seat, and in this scene, Fred and George tried to send Harry. Charlie, you need to take a photo of my reaction right now about the toilet seat thing. What an amazing callback, and what I want in my life, what I wish J.K. Rowling has done, is somehow had made a callback to this in book seven. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it would have been cheesy, but I don't even care. Yeah, I'd like to think that, I mean, sadly, it's not really Fred and George. It would just be Fred. But as Harry and Ginny's... Just George, Fred died. Uh, George, I mean. Um, I'm still in denial. George was the worst brother. I wish he was the one that died. No, Fred's the worst brother. Oh! Okay, we'll get that into that in later books. <laughs> you guys have got shit to look forward to. Right. I didn't realise we disagreed on this. Completely wow. unfounded arguments on either side. But you okay. should have seen the look we just gave each other. <laughs> like, yeah, like friendship over. Oh, wow, okay. But, okay, I like to think that George, for Ginny and Harry's wedding present, gave them a toilet seat. 100%. Yeah. But, like, before that, like, literally lines before that I love that Dumbledore basically says that like Madame Pomfrey like only just let Dumbledore in as if like Madame Pomfrey is just gonna be like I don't care that you're the headmaster no you're not letting him visit Madame Pomfrey is such a good character because it's certainly ironic that Dumbledore was an exception to the no visitors rule I love that Madame Pomfrey is so strict she's like no but I'm the headmaster no but I I am literally the headmaster <laughs> of the school no okay but I am literally the headmaster fine you can have 10 minutes but yeah. that is it. I love like, it. She, she cares so cares much. She cares so much. Like, she yeah. doesn't care what level or of... Because later, in book four, she screams at the Minister of Magic. The Minister... Imagine screaming yeah. at the Prime Minister. Oh, I would. No, but not in a context that you hate our Prime Minister. Just in the context I that always will. you don't want... Until it's Jeremy Corbyn. No, Jeremy Corbyn's awful as well. Anyway, um, just imagine screaming at your prime minister because you don't want people in a certain hospital. Madame Pomfrey's great. Yeah, she's amazing. She's my favourite kind of character where they're like so like absorbed and passionate about like what they do and their very own kind of like insular thing that they're just like, I don't care for any kind of like authority or otherworldly context. Yeah. It's just like, no, you will obey my rules. Yeah. So essentially what's happened is Harry's been unconscious three days mm-hmm. which is a fucking long amount of time i mean that's kind of my average nap <laughs> it's my weekends at the moment <laughs> um so dumbledore then ex- so then it's basically this entire conversation about context of what's just happened so dumbledore says that the stone has been destroyed and therefore flamel will die and it's a very adult conversation for a children's book and this this very much sticks out to me remembering listening to it as a child um 
Dumbledore as child, as child, as a child, Dumbledore basically says that you know, like Nicholas and his wife have lived so long that death is just for a well organized mind. mind. Death is just the next great adventure. Yeah, which is a really great great line. Um, so Dumbledore explains that Flamel will die because the stone has been destroyed. Harry then asks if Voldemort will keep trying to come back. And Dumbledore confirms, yes, yes he will. And it will take people like mm-hmm. you and people like me to continue to fight the evil to make him stop coming back. Yeah. Also, when Dumbledore is explaining the context of what happened, Harry's like, okay, great, so you got Hermione's letter then. And Dumbledore's like, oh, we crossed midair. And I'm like, okay, so Dumbledore knew that shit was going down. He got to the ministry, they were like, no, we didn't We didn't ask for you. He knew shit was going down and he's like, well, I'm just going to fly back. I could operate, but I'm just going to fly. I hope what he meant about cross midair is that Hermione's owl crossed him in Hogsmeade and he and the owl or was that like, he was kind of... was like, oh, Dumbledore earlier yeah. in London. Or perhaps it's kind of like, sort of like a metaphor slash saying where you're like, oh, cross really midair. And it's just so. like... So they- then Harry asked the key question. Why... Did ha- why did Voldemort try to kill him in yeah. the first place? And this is what I love from Dumbledore's point of view. He, mm-hmm. not, well, not point of view, but he says, like, I won't necessarily... Because Harry says, you know, I want you to answer these questions. And Dumbledore says, I won't necessarily answer, but what I will not do is lie. Mm. And this is the first example that we have in the book you know going back to the point i made earlier about communication from adults this is the first really solid communication where we have from adults where he you know straight up like you know there is some information that you are not ready for yet i'm not going to tell you but also i will not lie for you and it's so key that he directly says i will not lie to you and this is the first communication we have in all the books where the adults are actually communicating adequately with the children but it's also the last decent communication that we have from Dumbledore. Yeah. Like, yeah, he doesn't tell Harry why Voldemort didn't kill him as a baby, but he doesn't lie. Yeah. He just refuses to answer. He says Harry's too young. And this is brought back in book five when Voldemort said, I should have told you then. And it's a good point. Like, there would have been a simple way to tell Harry and Voldemort was, Dumbledore was too scared to. Um... Harry was mature enough for Dumbledore to let him know in this book, I believe. I, I don't think he needed to know that, you know, one of them was going to die. I don't. I think he could have known more than he did at this point, but yeah. I, I think he was too young to know, like, okay, so either you're going to murder him. No, or... I don't think he could have known that, but he could have known that Voldemort went after him because of a prophecy. Yes. I think he could have known that part. Um. So then Dumbledore... So then Harry asks... Why Quirrell couldn't touch him? Why Quirrell's hands burnt when he touched Harry? And Dumbledore explains that the love that Lily sacrificed when Lily gave her life for Harry to be able to live meant that a lasting protection lived in Harry's blood. And the bit I found amazing, which honestly, I've read, as I've said before in this podcast, I've read this book so many times and I never picked up on this because... I wasn't concentrating enough. Dumbledore becomes interested in a bird outside the window because Harry's crying. Oh. 
There's a lot I'm going to talk about later in these books about toxic masculinity and about representations of masculinity and about representations of emotions. Uh, and about representations of femininity. Exactly. Like, the whole thing. Um, the fact in book one, and this happens throughout the books, I know this happens throughout the books, J.K. Rowling writes a scene where the main character is crying, but she doesn't explicitly say, and Harry was so emotional he cried. She words it in a way where Dumbledore became distracted by a bird outside the window, so Harry had time to wipe his eyes on his sheet. It's, it's just so like, beautifully written. I find that beautifully written. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like, he is 12. He's allowed to cry. He could be 20 or 30 or 50 and going through this, and he yeah. would be allowed to cry. You don't need to... Uh, I know. There's two sides of it. I find it beautifully written because I don't remember any books from my childhood where a male protagonist cried. But also she could have gone further with it. She could have just said he Harry cried. Was crying like a fucking baby. Of course he was because Dumbledore had just told him his mother died to save him. This mm. mother that he never knew. This mother he doesn't remember. His This mother that he doesn't even know until the last few months yeah. what she looks like. But also it's more than wiping what your she eyes. Did in 1994 when she wrote this book was progressive for the time. Yeah. We didn't in 1994 when she wrote this book we didn't write about men crying. What we've got to remember I think is we're rereading these books in 2018. Mm -hmm. But these book, this first book was written in 1994, a year before Char me and Charlie were even born. J.K. Rowling writing that 11 year old protagonist in a children's book was wiping his eyes on his sheets was progressive. It was. And we have to give her applause for that. Yeah. And I know it's not progressive for 2018. I know that. But what we've got to remember throughout this, these books, and we're going to bring this up more and more as the books goes on. There's going to be loads of points where we say it's not progressive for now, but it mm. was progressive yeah, for then. but I think it's a really interesting point because you would think in what the space of like 20, 24 years, like you wouldn't think that that much would change. But it has. But like it has it's hugely. So and I, I, you know, without a doubt would argue within the past four years, people's standards for, in terms of like consuming media and yeah. how they analyse it and the standards that media is held to has changed drastically without, without a doubt even without within the past four years I, I think this podcast four years ago would be incredibly different yes yeah. and remind me to pick this up with you off air when we finish um it would be incredibly different even even two years ago I genuinely believe that so I think it's it's really interesting reading this now like 20 24 years later I think it's hugely valid that, you know, the way that we consume media has changed. Yeah, men, you know, nowadays we are still trying to come to the terms of the fact that men are allowed to cry and be emotional. But 24 years ago, men weren't. Men were still told to but be... But even now then... Even now they not. are, in my opinion. But, like, most men will deny it. Let's move on, because yep. I almost cried at that point. Oh, So... Um, Harry then asks about Snape and Dumbledore explains that Snape saved James during their time at school and Snape still feels in debt. Yes. Which Harry is so confused by, like, how can you feel angry at someone for saving their lives? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I completely understand this. Like, I have so many people that I will hate for both 
And some people are like, oh, hate's a strong word. I'm like, no, hate's just my general mood. Um, but I will have people that I hate and sometimes it's for logical reasons, sometimes it's not. But like, if I hate or dislike someone and they do something nice to me, yeah. I will have seething resentment towards them. Yeah. Like n nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm definitely. a bad person. <laughs> Uh, Harry doesn't understand this now and I love that it becomes more complex as the books go on you know the Snape saving James becomes more and, and more complex and this gets fully explained it's not just like pass away moment not that anything it is in Harry Potter but you know it comes into play it later does. on in such a huge way it does and I kind of love that Harry doesn't understand it in this book because yeah. he's 11 why would he it's such a small moment and it gets fully explained it basically is the plot of the third book and then it's the plot of the seventh book exactly. it's fantastic yes so Dumbledore leaves, the Alassia wax line, fantastic. Um, Jude Law. Jude really Law. Oh. So then Hermione and Ron come in to see Harry. Um, they have to persuade Madame Pomfrey to let them in, which is hilarious. I've just realized how many more notes I have about. I'm gonna rush through. Um, they discuss how Harry believes that Dumbledore wanted him to go down the trap door. So basically they discuss that, Ron basically brings up that he believes that Dumbledore knew what was going to happen all along. And Hermione mm -hmm. disagrees. But Harry says, yeah, I think he knew I was going to figure it out after long. Yeah. I think he was giving me the clues to be able to be given a chance to fight Voldemort. And it really reminded me of the bit you said in one of the last podcast episodes we recorded about Dumbledore being the master of chaos. Yeah. Because this is the moment. This is yeah. it. Like the god of chaos. The god of chaos. It's really, I, I need to do some like actual research into the mythology. I know that it's a very mytho mythology based thing, but mm. yeah, the god of chaos is like an established thing. I need to do some research so that like Hannah, I can bring some actual factual knowledge. <laughs> but that's what it reminded me of because yeah. we never know. It's never confirmed in the book whether Dumbledore wanted them to go down mm -hmm. the trapdoor or not. But Harry and Ron believe he did yep. and Hermione didn't. So it's so, up to us and our interpretation of Dumbledore yep. to believe what we will. Yeah. So that brings me to my note. Do you think it was a test? <sighs> yes, but not as far as it got. That's why Dumbledore feels so guilty at the end. Mm -hmm. I believe Dumbledore, yes, wanted them, thought they could find out about the Philosopher's Stone, and yes, realised they were finding out about it and didn't stop them, but never... He thought that they would get to, let's say, the winged keys and just get stuck. I don't even think he thought they'd get that far. I think he thought that he would be there yeah. when they came to him. Yeah. I think he wanted to nurture that investiga investigative... investigative. Um, spirit in them, but yeah. I think he thought that he would physically be present when they worked out. So that's why in that final scene where he's sitting over Harry, he feels this guilt, and you can tell mm -hmm. that guilt in his voice because yes, he wanted them to figure out the mystery of Nicholas Flamel and the Philosopher's Stone, but he never thought they'd get to the point where Ron sacrificed himself thinking he might die, Hermione had to work out that potion, and then Harry did almost die yeah. fighting Quirrell. Yeah. See, in my opinion, I don't think it was planned in any way. I do believe that Dumbledore kind of saw it happening, knew that they were working things out, and thought, I'm 
just going to leave this. Yeah. Like, nothing's going to happen from it. They might work a few things out. And I know that this is going to be good for Harry's future. Yeah. It's kind of like training. I want to see where it's going to go. Yeah. I don't think he thought it was going to turn out remotely like it did. But I think at some point he became aware that they were working things out. But I don't think he thought it was going to go as far as it was. I, I think, think that Harry is being a bit dramatic when he's like, he planned the entire thing. It's kind of a heartbreak between Harry and Hermione's opinion. Yeah. So then Hagrid visits and breaks down crying and says it's all his fault. Kind of is. Um, And he says he's never going to drink again. Oh, Hagrid. Which kind of struck a chord with me. We've always been there. We've all been there. We've all been there, Hagrid. We've all said and done things we regret whilst drinking. You're fine, mate. It's okay. I actually don't think I have. You know what? It is so ironic that I now co-host a drunken podcast. I was about to pick this up. I have no alcohol left. Do you want some beer? Yeah, I'll take a sip. Um... I, I didn't start drinking until I was 20, which obviously any Americans listening, you're like, that's normal. We've discussed this. Have we? Yeah. Oh, okay. So skip over. Yeah. So but say we started it's, it's just 20. very, very ironic that I now host a drunken podcast. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I started drinking, you know, the, the same age as normal people in Britain. What age did you? Have we discussed this? Um, so my parents allowed me alcohol from the table. Um, as in wine, yeah. from as young as I asked for it, watered down with lemonade to mm-hmm. make spritzes, because they believed that an acceptance of alcohol as a societal thing that you drink in yeah. company was a positive thing, yeah. which I, I very much yeah. believe was the right yeah. train of thought. I don't think we discussed this on the podcast, have we? No. Drinking in a social sense, my first party with alcohol was at 15. Okay, yeah. So very that's, normal for yeah, England. That's very, very I, normal. But I didn't get drunk. Like, I have, I think because I drank wine at the table with my parents at a young age, my tolerance for alcohol ended up higher than most of my peers. So my first drunk experience where dangerous, not dangerously drunk, but yeah, drunk, too drunk where friends had to look after me wasn't until age 18 at university yeah which is very late so I didn't start drinking until I was 20 because I always had parents that were incredibly tolerant of that they would be happy with me drinking pretty much from any age Mm -hmm. um it's like a bit mean girls where she's like if you're gonna drink I'd rather you you do it in the house and my parents were like that to such an extent where my teenage form of rebellion was not to drink. Uh, and my parents would jokingly call me a disappointment for not drinking. That's the same with my parents. We grew yeah. up in the same household. Yeah, we we really did. At one point, we had to trade photos of our parents just to be like, this isn't a double yeah, family Yeah, we were checking situation. we weren't half-sisters. It was quite terrifying. Yeah, it was a really tense moment. <laughs> but um, I was like, well, my, you know, our dads have really similar. My dad used to go away long business. Yeah, know. so did mine. Oh, my God. What if oh we my half-sisters? <laughs> Um, yeah, so because my parents were like so accepting and encouraging of it, it meant that I didn't feel the need to drink until I was like 20 years old. And even then I could live without it. And it was fantastic parenting, without yeah. a doubt. Like all of my parents, that had, all of my friends that had really strict parents went really off the rails. I had the most open-minded yeah. parents and I was such a boring child. So Hagrid says he'll have a drink again. Hagrid, darling. We've all been there. It's fine, hun. Yes. It's fine. So, but Hagrid then makes it all up because he's made Harry a photo album oh, of the of his parents. he goes to. It's not like they were just from his collection. He writes to all of their school friends. He's, no, no, no. He takes a day off 
Dumbledore gives him an annual leave day. Wait, how do you know this? Because it says it in the book. Does it? Yep. Dumbledore. How did I miss that? Dumbledore gave me a day off. I wrote to all your parents' old friends and got all the photos. I made this for you. It's just, oh my god, you just want to actually Bear in mind, so Hagrid probably realises this because Dumbledore has mentioned to him that the first time he's seen his parents is in the the mirror mirror of Erised. So Hagrid's like, oh my god, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. Let me make this photo album. It's just... My heart. Dear god, I'm gonna die. Like, I... I nearly cried. Like, I couldn't deal with this moment. It's, oh my god, I fucking love Hagrid. I love... Why did Harry name his child Severus rather than Grievous? So then we roll around to the end of term feast. And we have uh, Dick Move Dumbledore. <laughs> the fact that he announces. He's like, Slytherin are in the lead. No, Psych. they're not. <laughs> no, they're not, because I have... To... Right, if uh, you are going to give these last-minute points to Gryffindor, give them the day before the house-fucking-feast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The day... Like, you had four days yeah. in between Harry and Her- Ron and Hermione yeah. and Neville doing this shit and the house And I say if you feel like, as well as the points they need the entire school recognition yeah. of them getting the points, I understand that. But you didn't need to announce Slytherin as the winners and then go... But wait a it's minute. It's not just announcing, announcing Slytherin as the winners. It's like decking the hall. Deck the halls with Slytherin. Decorations. So he's like, let's decorate the hall. And they're like, psych, I was wrong. Give yep. the points. And then in the how, then in the final assembly be like, and this is why Gryffindor ended up winning. Yeah. It's a dick move from And my favourite thing is, obviously, like, it's kind of established that, you know, everyone knows what happened because, you know, Hogwarts gossip, it happens, blah, blah, blah. But, like, I really love that there's about to be a few people in the hall right now that don't know the story, like, really antisocial, not into gossip, blah, blah, blah. They don't really know what's happened or they've heard a very, like, far-fetched different thing. And to them, Ron has just gotten... 50 points for playing chess. <laughs> and they're like, what the fuck, what? man? <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> Love it. Love it. So it's it's very childish. This is going back to J.K. Rowling's childish writing. It, yeah, it's, it's the moment when so this book is... childish. This, kind of, this book and the second book, different from the others in that these are very, like, standalone children's yeah, books. You could read these without any of the other books. And I think from the third book, that changes. Yeah, 100%. So they end up winning the end of term feasts because, so what I noticed also was that with all the points added, if, you know, we're tearing it down, the points added only have an addition of 20 points to the points the crew lost during the dragon debacle. Mm -hmm. So if the whole dragon thing, which was Hagrid's fault, hadn't happened they would have only been 20 points behind Slytherin yeah. anyway. So that's the kind of thing that makes up for it. It's but in enough. the end, Neville wins 10 points for Gryffindor. Which is, like... I got chills. Yeah. I was literally like, whoa. If Dumbledore had done Neville first, <laughs> Neville wouldn't have gotten the credit, but it was very strategic that he didn't did Neville last. Yeah. Because he knew that that wasn't what Neville needed. That yeah. Even though, obviously, Neville got the least points of all of them, it wasn't really down to him. But the fact that he was announced last made it down to Neville. Even though his action was before everyone else's. Yeah. That he got them last 
meant that it was down to him and meant that he got that confidence boost. And it was which was what Neville needed. Because he probably asked the teachers. He knew about Neville's confidence issue. This is what I truly believe about Dumbledore. Whatever badge you want to throw at him. Yeah. He understands all his pupils. He does. He understood that he Neville cares. needed this confidence boost and cared about that, so he gave him the points last. And it's a truly beautiful moment when Neville mm -hmm. gets those ten points. And it's one of the film changes where the film was correct. Yeah. Where they're saying to stand up with your friend to stand up to your friends is braver than standing up to your enemies. As an adult, a hundred percent. Yeah. If I wanna, you know, say something against my boss or someone at work. That'll be very scary, but I'll do it. If I want to say something against one of my close, dear friends, that brings me out in weeks of anxiety oh, yeah. and panic attacks. Like, Having that's done it, terrifying. Yes. That's horrible. Yeah. Like, the films are more right here saying Neville's actions were braver. Gryffindor win the House Cup. They go back on the Hogwarts Express. Um, this bit is kind of rushed. They're like back on Hogwarts Express. They're saying goodbye. Um, Hermione's kind of shocked at the treatment of the Dursleys. But, you know, we gloss through it. Yeah. And Harry ends the book by saying Dudley doesn't know. Yeah. Magic isn't banned. Mm -hmm. So therefore he can tease Dudley the whole holidays. Yes. But Petunia would know. Yeah, she would. That's a good point. But she doesn't say Plot anything. Hole. Maybe she thinks the rules have been changed, but I don't know. Maybe. Yes. Maybe. But that's how the book ends. It's such a fantastic book. It is. Let's it, talk uh, about the book in general. So yes. I have a few notes. Did you make notes about the book in general? I, I, did? I didn't because I just... Oh, it's just okay. fucking fantastic. So you just bounce off my notes. My first notes are so many memories. This, looks like, uh, this book, book brought back so much nostalgia. So much. Like, just... Oh, I love it. I love yes. it. So then I wrote down... For J.K. Rowling's first book, a fantastic mystery. Yes. And still to this day, one of the best misdirections I've ever read. If I read this as an adult, without reading Harry Potter, if I forgot all of Harry Potter and read this book now, as an adult... Mm -hmm. I believe I would still think Quirrell is the villain. Yes. Because the misdirection is so clever. And this is where J.K. Rowling's writing. <laughs> Books and films get more complicated as time goes on. But J.K. Rowling's talent lies in simplicity. And yeah. here is where it shows. Yeah. Like, it's an absolutely amazing book. Not only is it, like, a standalone children's book that would have worked if this was the only one ever published. 100%. But it works as, like, more of an overarching plot later on, which is just genius to have the balance between both. Like, you don't feel like questions are unanswered, like, with the only season of Firefly. You feel like you know all that you need to know at the time, yeah. but also it's built upon and called back later on. Yeah. It's amazing. It's perfect balance between being like child friendly and also just having so much more deep and meaning and metaphors. And it's just, it is like a beautiful work of art and it's enchanting is the only word to describe yeah. it, both because it's magic and just because it's so like beautifully written and whimsical and magical and it just, Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. It is. It's so good. There are some parts of the writing which are poor. And Obviously, adult, it's her first book. As an adult, we have to acknowledge that. Until reading this book critically for this podcast, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Reading it yes. critically, especially reading it now, having you know been to university, all of that shit. 
to do makeup. <laughs> Shut up. Not English literature. There are some points where the writing is bad and the plot progression is bad, but for the first novel this woman had yes. ever had published, wow. And also, like, you know, I'm sure had she had known what it turned into later on, you know, her and her editors would have gone over it more. But as thinking, okay, this is probably some one-off, like, children's books don't do that well. This is a one-off children's book. It's really good, so we'll give it a go, but it probably won't turn into yeah. anything. You completely understand why there is a few plot holes. Yeah, 100%. But, oh my God, for yeah. what it is, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Uh, what I also realised reading this book is... It's noticeably shorter than the others. It's yes. very noticeably. But what I find amazing is it fits it all in. So this book is about 200 pages. In Order of the Phoenix, they don't even arrive in Hogwarts at page 200. But somehow, by a miracle of very clever writing, the plot fits into 200 pages. And that's clever. That is mm. clever. It's amazing how in 200 pages, the character motivations and personalities are established so clearly. Yes. Despite just 200 pages of setup, I feel like even though Ron and Hermione and all the other background characters aren't fleshed out that much, we understand the principle of yeah. the characters, which is very impressive. What I also find impressive is at this point where J.K. Rowling wrote this book, Although she had all seven planned, she had no idea they would all be published. Yeah. So this is impressive. It was very optimistic writing. It was. This is impressive in the fact it works as part of a wider series, but also as a standalone book. Yeah. It's very clever. The last point I have is this book is much more whimsical than the rest of them. It is. And part of that is reflected in the fact what I've read afterwards is J.K. Rowling wrote over half this book before her mother died. Oh. The darkness yeah. of Harry comes from her own feelings mm -hmm. after her mother died, um, which I think feels very apparent because it's very yeah. real. Um, so the reason why this book is more whimsical than the others is because half of it was already written before yes. her own mother died. Um, and this book is so much more whimsical than the rest of them. Yeah. Like, so much more. And that really stands out. Yeah. But I also think it works. And it works like... Particularly when you were born, when we were born, we yeah. grew up with the book. So then becoming less and less whimsical was also as tragically our lives became less whimsical. Yeah, like the books became less whimsical as we went through puberty. Yeah. So it was very relatable. Yeah, like, like I always joke that I will abandon my children on the side of the road if they don't like Harry Potter. No, but realistically, I know they will never have the same experience. They will never grow up as Harry grows up and they will never have the like excruciating few years wait between books so yeah. they won't have the same experience with Harry Potter as me yeah um I will when I'm raising my children have a ban against them going to other people's houses <laughs> and watching the, the films. films I will actively tell other parents you will not show them the Harry Potter films 100%. and I will be reading them the books as they grow up yeah 100% my last point is just I, I love yeah, it I, I can see this in your notes it's just caps lock I love, love it. it and, and I love heart, heart. Um, and I have to agree like, I don't care about the plot holes. I don't care about the bad writing. It is fantastic. This and book, it's not, no, it's not bad writing. It's flawed writing. It's Come flawed on. writing. And the fact that it's flawed writing and her improvement to book seven is a credit to J.K. Rowling. Yes. It's a credit to her as an author. And I find that impressive. Yes. And also this book, I just want to say, rereading it, it's just my childhood. Like, it, every line I could hear in my yes. own head 
and I could hear in times, me and Charlie both have the same feeling. Continue. In times of, she's gone to the loo. I'm just gonna be talking on my own. In times, wow, slam the door. In times of comfort, in times of darkness, and in times of negativity, and in times of bad things happening for both of us, Harry Potter is what we turn to. And this book is so much lighter than the rest and full of so much more whimsy. It reminded me of the reasons why I first fell in love with these books. It's the fact that it transports you to somewhere so different from your own life whilst keeping the relatability of your life. So yeah, you're after Hogwarts and there's all this magic and there's all this whimsy but you're still this kid that didn't know about it in the first place. And I think that's what sets it apart from other fiction books of its time. And that's the reason that... Did you wash your hands? I did! That's the reason that both of us fell in love with it, especially in times of darkness and I don't know what she just said, but I'm just gonna agree. I had to run because I was literally about to piss myself. I was basically saying the reasons why this book is so comforting in times of darkness. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard for us to explain. For me, I literally, this book changed my life. I touched on this in the first episode, but I feel like it is more than appropriate to go back on it now. Yeah. But like this book, you know, a lot of the time when people are like, oh, this book, this album, this whatever changed my life. It's like, did it? With me, it did. Like, with me, Harry Potter gave me the spark and the passion about reading mm -hmm. and about stories that, you know, inspired me to read. Harry Potter, when I found out that I had dyslexia, was the thing that I was like, by the time that the last book comes out, I want to read it for myself. I don't, yeah, I love Stephen Wright. I don't want to have him read it to me. Um, that's, you know, who reads the audiobooks for any American listeners, <laughs> the Jim Dale ones. I'm sorry, I know you love him. It's not great. Not great. Um, <laughs> Stephen Wright, all the way. You know, it was what inspired me and challenged me and made me want to read. You know, so many people, even at that age, that, you know, time when reading was more common than it is now. Obviously now everything is so digital and internet, but even then it was kind of like losing. You yeah. know, not everyone was, was into reading as they used to be. And it was Harry Potter that really sparked that in me. And I owe my life to it because Harry Potter is what inspired me to properly learn how to read and have that passion which le you know led to me doing well in school and well in GCSEs and A levels through to doing like really really well into into my degree which led to me having like a career and a life that I am so passionate about and the now career where we met each other which is just yeah very odd to think exactly about. and like had I not learned you know had I not read Harry Potter I wouldn't have learned to read to the degree that I have now, which I know must be bizarre for anyone to hear that doesn't have dyslexia. Yeah. If you have dyslexia, you will understand how hard it is. You really need something to drive you. And for me, that was Harry Potter. So without it, I literally, I owe Harry Potter and I owe one of my teachers when I was 11, who I've been trying to track down. I owe them my life that I have now. My life that I am just so unbelievably thankful for yeah it it literally when i say harry potter changed my life i'm not joking harry potter didn't change my life it made my life yeah. and i think i'll go over it more in book four which is the book i turn to in times of like difficulty um and i'll go over more the times i've turned to it 
Um, but for me, you know, I, I was always a good reader. I always knew how to read really well. But for me, it's home. And I'm, I'm very lucky that I haven't suffered with loads of terrible things in my life. But the things I have suffered with, I know I wouldn't have been able to get through them without yeah. Harry Potter. And, and I'm, I'm saving to talk about that purposely till book four. Because I know that's the real book that yeah. helped me. But I just want to mention that now. Yeah. So, I'm looking at the recording and I know we've talked for nearly two hours. I don't so care. we need to stop. Enjoy. But we love this book. We love it. And also, thank you. You have got to the end of us talking for more hours than the length, I believe more hours than the length of the actual audiobook wow. of book one. So thank you. Thank you so much. Like, thank you so, so much. Like, we cannot thank you guys enough. And if you have listened to all episodes, just tweet us at Please. Goblet of Wine Pod and we will send you special video messages. We will draw you a little picture, like, whatever you want. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. We'll do for you, because we are so fucking thankful that you have listened to us waffle on, because we enjoy this so much, and we never believed that people yeah. would want to listen to it's us ramble on about this. Insane. It we, is insane. We can't believe it, and we genuinely, we enjoy this so much. Like, it's my favourite thing. I look forward to every recording I session do. I so do. much. I do. Like, so... Thank you guys. And if you're listening and haven't at this point tweeted us or Instagrammed us, whatever you want, if you want to DM us because you don't want to like publicly just do whatever, we will reply. Yes, please. We are so thankful. Yes. Um, so thank you. Yeah, we hope that you're excited for us to start book two. But before that, we are doing a special break from the normal tradition and doing a film episode. Yes. We are, which we're about to record. We are we're going to watch the film. And then drunkenly... Yes. And then we're going to do book two. Yes. So, and look book, forward to that. Yes. And we're going to have some special guests. There will be episodes where it is just us. Don't, don't worry. worry. Like, don't worry. We're not going to abandon you. But, but we're also going to have a few special guests, we which are. we're super, super excited about. Don't They're, worry. They are yeah. either Harry Potter fans or people that will add a lot to the podcast. So yeah. do not we worry. We know who it is. We're very excited. One of them you've already had on the podcast yeah. quite a bit. So do not yes. worry. Thank you. And Thank you from the yeah. bottom of our hearts from listening. We love you. We love you just as much as we love Harry Potter. Thank you for listening to this episode of Goblet of Wine. Remember, you can keep up with us on Twitter at Goblet of Wine Pod and Instagram at Goblet of Wine Podcast. You can also leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Thank you to our lovely Patreon producer, Sandra, for her help supporting this podcast. If you'd like to support us and gain access to bonus content and rewards like choosing our alcohol, behind-the-scenes content and bonus episodes, check us out on our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Goblet of Wine. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye! Bye.